You're in the right room if you're looking for our program entitled Lessons from Ellie Wiesel's Classroom. Um, we are dedicating tonight in memory of Lee Brockett. Where's Marion? We're dedicating tonight in, in uh, honor of Lee's memory. Lee passed away just a few weeks ago. We're very happy to have Marion back with us. Marion's been caring for Lee and hasn't made it, even though she's on our board, to any programs in about a year. But welcome back, Marion. Okay. Um, I've wanted to do a program on uh, Ellie Wiesel, and when I got the opportunity to bring our speaker tonight, I thought there would be a great way to cover Ellie Wiesel in a different perspective. So before we get there, a few remarks. Those of you who are new, who's the new Bostonian here? Raise your hand. I'm wearing my Patriots Keepa, so I want to make sure you know that. We have some Bostonians here. Um, our speaker's from Boston, and he's a big Patriots fan as well, thank goodness. Even though when you read the book, you'll find out he's not from Boston. This is the middle of our 18th year of programs. Those of you who are new to CSP, our goal has been to bring the best Jewish thinkers in the world to Orange County. To date, we have raised and spent uh, somewhere between three, three to four million dollars from private people, people around you here, and um, we've received a, a contribution from the Jewish Federation Family Services and Jewish Community Foundation, but about 85% of our money comes from our donors, and uh, we've brought in about 180 people. We've done over 500 programs since we started, so 18th year, moving on to 20. I want to thank all of you who are donors and members of our Legacy Circle for supporting us. A few things I wanted to mention. Upcoming programs. So we have our 13th annual CSP Adult Retreat coming up next weekend. Gil Chovav, uh, the Israeli's first foodie, great-grandson of Eliezer Ben Yehuda. Some of you heard him when we brought him in um, about a year ago, thanks to Debbie Meline. He's coming back from Israel just to hang out with us for the day. The program is sold out, but maybe we'll bring him back to the community. He's a terrific speaker and presenter. Mark Michael Epstein is coming to town for a weekend of programs, March 8th, which is um, on Friday at lunch. He's doing Lions, Unicorns, and Fiery Dragons, The Art of Polish Synagogues. He'll be doing that at the Federation campus. Um, and we have about 45 people signed up with space for about 10 more people. He'll be at CBI for Shabbat, speaking on the topic, The Jews of Italy, History, Culture, and Literature, Arts, Music, and Food. There's a flyer I put out there if you want to know more about that, and you can sign up through the CBI well, by calling CBI, I think, or emailing them. Then on Sunday, we're going to the Getty Villa with Mark as our guide. Uh, we have a luxury bus. Unfortunately, if you didn't sign up, it's sold out. So, sorry. But you can be on a wait list. Uh, just email me. Uh, I'm very happy to announce that Andy Arnovitz, who's a very well-known artist, will be in town. She's going to be our CSP artist in residence, March 12 through 13. She's going to do three programs. The first one's entitled Tear Repair. The second one, People of the Book, Artist Book. And the third is Living Underwater. There's a flyer there, and some of you got an email about it already, and you'll be getting a constant contact invitation. And uh, yes, Rochelle says she's fabulous, and you know how critical Rochelle is. That means she's A++. Rochelle went to her private home to, see, to meet her in Jerusalem. That's why we have her here, because Rochelle said we had to bring her. Lithuania, Poland, we're going July 7th through 19th. That program is sold out, but if you want to be on the wait list, we're happy to have you. Um, we are, as I mentioned before, looking at going to Israel, October 2020, for our third in our three-part trip to Israel. That program we have not opened reservations for. We just have an interest list, and it's about 100 people already. So if you want to be on that list, you get the first opportunity to sign up. We are entering our CSP CAP Challenge third year. You saw all the winners. Raise your hand if you're a winner and you're here tonight. Did you enjoy the gifts you got in the mail? Absolutely. Did you enjoy your gifts? Yes. You got the halva? You got the rugelach and the, okay. 
Um, so I would get your CSP hats out, and uh, you've got a year to get some great photos from around the world. We are recording tonight for iTunes. Right next to Rabbi Light is Grendel. Grendel's recording. Rabbi Light is taking notes. So between the two of them, you're covered tonight. Please take a moment to turn off your cell phones or put them on vibrate mode. We'll be doing a book signing immediately after the program, so if you bought your book already or received your book, please stay. We have just a few books left. We always get a really good discount on our books, and we pass the discount back to you. So you can buy the book here for $15, or you can go online and buy it for $24. Your choice. I would get it here. By the way, this is my book. I read the entire book, and I gave Rabbi Spitz a book. He read the entire book. We both give it thumbs up. I put down all these pages of things that were interesting, and I just gave up because it was like every page. You'll find out more about what's in the book in a second. Our speaker tonight is from, as I mentioned, from the Patriots territory in the United States of America. Um, I did get an email saying that it's very, very happy that the championship drought is over for Boston. After 93 days, we have another championship. Ariel Berger is a writer, artist, teacher, and rabbi whose work combines spirituality, creativity, and strategies for social change. A lifelong student of Elie Wiesel, he spent years studying the great wisdom traditions and now applies those teachings to urgent contemporary questions. When Ariel is not learning or teaching, he's creating music, art, and poetry. He lives in Sharon, Massachusetts, near my brother David, <laughs> and uh, with his family. This was not in his bio, so I'm going to add it. In 2003, he received Orthodox smicha from the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. In 2008, he earned his doctorate with Elie Wiesel in Judaism and Conflict Resolution. Um, after graduating, or while studying, I don't recall, he spent six years with the Combined Jewish Philanthropies in the position as director of the Commission of Life and Learning. Did I get that right? So um, what we're going to hear about tonight is uh, Ariel Berger's experience being Elie Wiesel's TA for about 20 years or more, his life story, this book is the story of Elie Wiesel, and Ariel's private life. Everything is in here. Please join me in welcoming Ariel Berger to Orange County, California. By the way, it rains here all the time. I just, it's, very it's a pleasure to be with all of you. It's such a vibrant community. Elie Wiesel once said that if you look at Jewish history, the only communities that survived were the communities where they had serious Jewish learning. And the communities where that didn't happen over time disappeared. And that actually brings me to the first story I want to share with you tonight. On the last day of class, where Elie Wiesel taught at Boston University, he opened the floor to students to ask questions about anything they wanted to, about the course readings, about current events, or about his own life. And a student named Rachel raised her hand and she asked him, Professor, after going through everything you went through, how did you keep going? And he said, learning saved me. And then he told a story. He said that after, the, after liberation, the young people were gathered together by the International Red Cross. They were going to be sent eventually to an orphanage in France where they would spend the next few years. How many of you have read Night by Elie Wiesel? Do you remember the last scene of the book? The very last scene, Elie Wiesel has just been liberated. He's looking in a mirror and he says a corpse is looking back. So I always wondered what happened the day after? What happened next? And this story is what happened next. The International Red Cross gathered the young people and they asked them 
what can we do for you? Can we get you anything to make your lives better? And Professor Wiesel told the class, I remember one young woman asked for a coat because she hadn't been warm in three years. A young boy asked for chocolate, which he hadn't tasted for about five. He said, I asked for the same volume of Talmud, the great work of classical Jewish text, that I was studying before the war so that I could pick up my studies at the exact same line and the exact same word where they were interrupted. And that, he said, is what saved me. And he added, I think that learning is what can save us all. So I met Professor Wiesel when I was 15 years old, which is a miracle. It's just an unbelievable thing that I still have a tremendous sense of awe uh, about. And when I met him and when I got to know him over the following years, I had a, a big question, because I also read Night, and I also read that last scene. And I always wondered, how did he go from that last page of Night and those experiences, which are are really horrific and impossible to put into words and even describe, and certainly impossible to understand for someone of my innocent and, and relatively joyful and, and, and uh, American background. How did he go from that to being the person I knew, who was a person of tremendous joy, tremendous curiosity, had a great sense of humor, was someone who was filled with life, Someone who, when, when I heard that he passed away many years later, my first thought was, but he was the youngest person I knew. How could it be? So how did he go from night to joy? And this story that I heard in class in answer to Rachel's question was the answer. It was learning. It was his curiosity. I met him at age 15. I was struggling with a lot of questions about the relationship between Judaism and especially the Orthodox Judaism that I was mostly growing up in. I went to a very religious school. And the arts, how do those things fit together? I, I was an artist from a young age. I had a sense of myself as an artist. I was always doodling in the margins of the Talmud when we were studying Talmud in class. And eventually there were more doodles than words on the page. And when I spoke to my teachers in, in my school about these things, about the arts, about wanting to take art classes, they looked at me blankly. There was no understanding of what that even meant. And so I, I approached, I finally found the chutzpah to approach Professor Wiesel because I saw him as someone who bridged those two worlds of religion, faith, pre-war Judaism, Hasidic life, and the arts. He was a writer. He was a very creative person involved in the world in such an important way. So I brought him my questions in my late teenage years. And he never answered my questions. He always answered my questions with another question. And that was a very Jewish thing to do. And it also, at first, was um, confusing to me. But I, I realized, I started to realize that his questions were so much better than mine. They were so much more precise that his questions really helped me clarify what I was trying to figure out. And later I would learn that his whole philosophy was built on the celebration of questions. And so I want to ask you a favor tonight. As I'm sharing with you, as I'm speaking, if a question occurs to you, write it down so you don't lose it. And we'll have Q&A later. Questions are precious. I want to make sure they don't disappear. We'll try to catch them. And he said, questions open us up and answers close us down. Questions connect us, answers divide us. And in Hebrew, the word for question is she'ela. And if you look closely, at the center of that word is another word, God, El. He said, God is in the questions. 
So we have to celebrate questions. And after several years, I enrolled in his class at Boston University. This is the first, first formal experience of learning I had with him. And I sat in his classroom, and I was very, very intimidated, very shy. I sat in the corner, hoping not to be noticed. And I, I said one word the entire semester. And I said that word only because he looked at me, and he asked a question, and he waited, and he waited. And there was a long silence, and I had no choice but to say the word that was in my mind. And the word was authenticity. And a few weeks later, he asked me to become his teaching assistant the following year at BU. So you should know, first of all, that the word authenticity is always a good word to use <laughs> in a job interview or a difficult conversation. Just say the word. It doesn't matter what the context is, but it'll open doors magically. He asked me to become his TA, and I declined because I was already planning to go to Israel to study in yeshiva. I wanted to study the sacred texts of my own tradition, and frankly, I didn't feel like I had enough to offer to be Elie Wiesel's teaching assistant. I hadn't learned enough. So I wrote him a long letter, and I called him the following week, and I said, did you get my letter? And he said, I did. He said, I understand your decision. And he said, I'll wait for you. And I thought he was just being kind, but he meant it. And seven years later, after I had studied, had received ordination, and you know that when you become a rabbi, the next question is, what am I going to do with my life? So I, I went to Professor Rizal to ask his advice. And he said, well, I told you I'd wait for you. Come be my, be my assistant now. Come to Boston University. And so in order to do that, you had to enroll in a doctoral program which I had never planned on doing. I had already spent enough time sitting in a seat reading. So I, I was, to my own surprise, I enrolled in the program just to have an opportunity to be close to him. And, um, and I was with him as a teaching assistant, not for 20 years. I knew him for, 20, for 25 years or more, but I was his teaching assistant for five years at Boston University from 2003 to 2008. And I sat in his classroom, and I saw stunning moments of transformation and my jaw was on the floor on a regular basis. And you know, the world knows Elie Wiesel as Holocaust survivor, author of Night, Nobel Peace Prize winner, human rights activist, confidant of presidents and prime ministers. But if you asked him who he was, he always said, I'm a teacher, I'm a teacher. Sometimes he said, I'm a teacher first. Sometimes he said, I'm a teacher and it motivates everything else that I do. He said, it's the last thing I'll ever give up. In fact, in 2014, Elie Wiesel was offered the presidency of the state of Israel. And I saw him that day, and he told me. And I said, so, are you going to take it? He said, no. I said, why not? He said, because I'm a teacher. I'm not a politician. I'm a teacher. And teaching was so central to him. And his classroom at Boston University, where he taught for almost 40 years, was a very special atypical classroom. It had all the trappings of a typical college class, the papers, the reading, the rigorous intellectual work, but there was something different about it, and it started with the students. The students who came to his class were from all over the world, different generations. There were undergraduate, graduate students, uh, postdocs, there were professionals who were auditing, and there were evergreen students who were retirees who came to take courses at Boston University. And so it felt like a kind of enlarged Thanksgiving dinner. It was boisterous and raucous at times, but 
also reverence. People had a sense of reverence for him. And when he walked in the room, there was a certain kind of silence. And the questions that people brought to this class were, were not just academic questions. There were children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. There were survivors of violence and war in places around the world, from the Far East and Africa and South America and elsewhere, who were trying to understand their own experiences and see if there was a way to make those experiences into a blessing that they could bring back home. Very occasionally, there were grandchildren of Nazis who came to study with Elie Wiesel. And they were trying somehow to redeem the terrible legacy of their ancestors. And these people were among the most sincere seekers of knowledge and of redemption, the most devoted students and, um, and um, scientists of ethics and moral questions that I've ever met. And Elie Wiesel welcomed all of these people, even though in university classrooms, very often you're supposed to leave the personal stuff at the door. It's supposed to be an objective space where you're, you're learning about a field, you're learning the discipline of that field, the methodology. Here, the personal was really important because for Professor Wiesel, that's what learning is. That's the kind of learning that can save us. It's not just the transmission of information. And so he taught us about faith and language and its limits he told us you have to identify evil. He said, what's worse than evil? What's worse than evil is evil wearing a mask, evil that looks like or presents itself as good. And so the first thing you have to do is name things correctly with precision. Well, how do we do that? How do we know what's going on on the other side of the world? Is what's happening in Darfur, this is in the early 2000s, is what's happening in Darfur genocide or civil war? How do we know? How do we get to the truth of the matter? And this is, by the way, before we had a category called fake news. This is a, an epistemological question, a question of knowledge. How do you know that you can make a difference and that you're not gonna make things worse? These are the kinds of questions that Elie Wiesel entertained, but it was in the context of the study of literature and philosophy and religion. So we were reading um, sections of the Bible and Kierkegaard and uh, Euripides and Sophocles and Shakespeare and Kafka and Dostoevsky and Camus, these are some of his favorites. And the study of that literature was put in close dialogue with contemporary questions. I saw him and I saw his students. I had a seat off to the side. The teaching assistant sat on the side. It was a perfect view of the interaction of the, student and the, the students and the teacher. And I saw him act with tremendous intensity I saw him in moments of joy. I saw him laugh. I saw his arched eyebrow when he was challenging a student's suggestion or question. Go a little deeper, he said, but he said it without words. And I saw him when a student answered well or asked a good question, he would say, A plus, right away. And then he would turn to me. I was the TA, I had to, I had to submit the grades. He would actually turn to me and say, make sure you put an A plus for that student. And I would go to him afterwards and say, I mean, he didn't write his paper yet. <laughs> he connected ancient traditions and ancient wisdom, both the Jewish tradition and others, with contemporary issues and questions. He said, how do you know the difference today? If you're looking at politicians, how can you tell the difference between a false prophet and a true prophet? He said, he said a false prophet comforts you, and a true prophet disturbs 
He made connections between ethics and beauty. He said, I'm trying to teach you beauty. This isn't just a question of right and wrong. This is a question of aesthetics. This is a question of creating a beautiful world. He pointed out that in the Bible, there's one book that has no song or poetry in it. It's the book of Joshua, which is the book of the Israelites conquering the natives of the land of Israel. It's a book of war. He said, where there's war, there can be no poetry. He spoke about the connection between faith and rebellion. And you, you know that Elie Wiesel's relationship with God was complicated. He had tremendous faith and devotion and fervor as a child. He dreamt of Jerusalem and the Messiah. He was involved in mystical practices at the age of 13 with two of his friends who both went insane as a result because this is dangerous material to study when you're too young. But he was involved in this because he lived in the world of bringing heaven down to earth, the world of the Hasidic masters whom he loved, the world of the rabbinic texts that have kept our people alive for so long, and the world of the Bible with its message of prophecy and justice and creating a world of kindness. He said he knew the streets of Jerusalem better than he knew the streets of his hometown of Siget in Transylvania. He lived in that world, and he had tremendous faith but that faith was shattered in Auschwitz and Buchenwald. And when he emerged, after liberation, he spent the next years trying to reconstitute a faith, a life of faith, but it had to be different. He said, if you look at the research on the faith and doubt of Holocaust survivors, you find something interesting. Anyone who had faith before lost their faith or their faith was significantly changed Anyone who didn't have faith, the Jewish atheists, Bundists, socialists, many of them found faith through encounter with the Holocaust. And that means that no one was unchanged. No one was immune to transformation. How could you be? Even reading about it changes us, should change us. And so he put together a new kind of approach to faith, which had everything to do with arguing with God. And he taught his students that you can argue with God. And this is actually a, an old Jewish value. You know that Abraham argues with God and Moses argues with God. And Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, the great Hasidic master, much later argues with God. And Elie Wiesel also argued with God. And that was his devotion. That was his faith. And the Christian students in the class, there were many Christian ministry students who came to Elie Wiesel's class. And many of them struggled with theological questions about the Holocaust and the role of Christianity in anti-Semitism over the many, many centuries. Some of them called Elie Wiesel, they would refer to him as my priest. They would go to him, not literally, but in a sense for confession, and they would talk about it. And when they heard that you can argue with God and that that's an expression of faith, for them that was a very radical idea because that wasn't what they were being taught in their theological schools. And so, he brought together ancient literature and contemporary issues, different traditions, and he did it with tremendous humor. When he was talking about faith and arguing with God, sometimes he would say, not when he was talking about the Holocaust, that was too, too intense for such a statement, but when he was talking about other things, he would say, come on, Mr. God, really? And he would look to the sky and he would sort of chuckle. And he had that kind of dialogue in front of the class with God and it gave permission. He also brought current events into the classroom. I mean, this was a teacher who was traveling around the world meeting with presidents and heads of state. And so he would sometimes say to the students, I'm going to speak with the president of France next week. What should I ask him? 
And the students would sit in silence, not believing that he was really asking them that question, but he really was. And he would come back the next week and report on his conversations. He would say, I brought you, that question, it was really interesting. This is what we talked about. And this is a trend. I interviewed many students for the book who were in his class over decades. This was something that happened throughout the years. I heard a story that I, I believed, but I was a little skeptical about. I heard a story that when Elie Wiesel was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1986, he came to class and he, asked, he said to his students, you know, this is how he said it. He said, you know, I'm going to have to give a speech in Oslo next week. That was how he told them, very <laughs> modestly. I'd like you to take out a pen and a piece of paper and write one line that you think I should include in my speech. So I heard that story from two sources, from the, the teaching assistant in those years and one of the students, who's now a, an important Holocaust educator, both of them actually. And you know, I, I kept the story in, in, in sort of the back pocket, but I, I didn't include it in the book at first because I wanted some hard evidence. And I went to the archive at Boston University and I, in a box, one of hundreds of boxes I found different kinds of paper with one line each. I was, I was trying to figure out what is this? It was out of context. There was no context or, or you know, cover page or anything. It was just a random assortment of pages with single lines, inspirational lines, but clearly written by students. And I finally realized this is, this is that story. This is real, this is it. Students asked him, what was it like to go to the White House? And he would say, I always leave hungry. <laughs> And they would say, they'd say, why? He said, because they always order kosher food for me, which I really appreciate. But when the president is talking, how can I talk? And when the president's not talking, I'm talking. So I never get to eat. But he also said, when I'm in the White House, I really feel like a yeshiva bacher, like a young religious boy from my hometown. I really feel like, like I'm there from Siget, from my hometown. And I think there's a part of me thinking how strange it is that a young boy who was on his way to becoming a teacher of Torah, a teacher of Jewish text in a, in a yeshiva, would be here sitting with the president of the United States talking about the world, how to make it better. What a strange way that history works. History certainly has a sense of humor. And that inner child was very present in the class. He told a story that when he was young, he came home from school one day and he, he was very excited. He, said, he must have been around six or seven years old. He said to his mother, Mama, Sarah's pregnant. I can't believe it. And she said, which Sarah? Thinking it was one of the neighbors. He said, Abraham and Sarah, they're going to have a baby. He was so excited. And later they got to the story of Joseph and his brothers and Jacob sends Joseph to his brothers and we know that, jo that the brothers hate, hate Joseph and they're, they're, going to, they're, go they're plotting against him and young Elie Wiesel was reading that and he was looking into the book yelling, Joseph, don't go there. Your brothers, your brothers are going to ambush you. Don't do it. And he brought that even as an older man who had read the Bible thousands and thousands of times and knew it by heart. He brought that same sense of wonder and curiosity. And it's my belief as an educator that the beginning of good education, the beginning of ethical transformation is curiosity and openness. So to have a teacher who was the most childlike person in the room in the best way, 
was a real gift for everyone because, you know, a, a, a 19-year-old student can be very jaded. We've already learned this in Religion 101. I already got the theory. I already understand. That's what happens with bad education. And he always reminded us, we haven't even started yet. Even if you've learned this many times before, we haven't even started yet. This is an adventure. We don't know where we're going. And Elie Wiesel didn't use notes. He didn't create lesson plans, ever. He had note cards with five or six words, single words in Hebrew on them. I have some of them that he gave to me that um, were just notes to himself of things he might want to cover, might want to mention. But the conversation was free-flowing, and we never knew where it was going to go. And he was very excited about that. And, you know, he, he taught for 40 years. He never repeated a course. He never taught the same course twice. And he wanted to be challenged. He wanted to be reading new things and learning. He said, I'm the best student here. I'm the best student in this class. Do you know how he chose the courses, the course topics for the following year? He asked me, what do you want to do next year? What do you want to learn next year? He asked his teaching assistants, and he would, nine times out of ten, he would do it. So I said, I want to learn Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. I want to learn the tales of Rabbi Nachman, the great Hasidic tales of Rabbi Nachman. So we did an entire semester on those tales, those fairy tales of, of a great Hasidic master. I said, it would be interesting to do something about banned and hidden books from many, many different periods, from the Holocaust, but also other periods. He said, okay, let's do it. Put together a reading list and let's talk about it. We'll have, we'll have a back and forth about the syllabus. That was how he crafted his courses. He wanted to be surprised. He taught me as a young emerging teacher to teach from the edge, to not overly develop or prefabricate education. I think that's a really important first principle for me. I never saw him eat anything except chocolate or chocolate rugelach. Who got the rugelach? He loved rugelach. And I think once maybe I saw him take a small bite of a sandwich, but only once. And he didn't like celebrating his birthday. There was a moment in class when students knew when his birthday was because it was, it was public knowledge. And they brought, they brought chocolate. And they surprised him by singing happy birthday. And his response was the gentlest raining on a party I've ever seen. He said, this is what he said. He said, you know, he said, thank you. And he said, you know, there's only one person in the Bible who celebrates his birthday. Do you know who it is? It's Pharaoh. <laughs> it's Pharaoh. So I don't like to celebrate my birthday. I don't want to be like Pharaoh. And then he handed out the chocolates to the class. <laughs> Meanwhile, as all of this was happening, I was becoming closer with him. We were meeting at least once a week. And I would share my personal questions and questions about career and relationships and questions about faith and my own inner struggles and questions about where to live. And, and he, again, he never answered me. He never told me what to do. But he would say things to me like, you know, you have the knowledge inside of you. He told me once, when you're finished praying in the morning, keep your talis and tefillin on, your prayer shawl and your phylacteries, and just sit. Just sit and listen. Make sure you make time to just sit and listen. Once after an hour-long conversation where he was very, very helpful and generous with me, as he always was, but this one in particular, he was just asking, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? I asked him finally, well, is there anything I can do for you? 
And he said, just be. Just be. And I took that as really the most difficult homework assignment of my life. It's very difficult to just be. I'm still working on that. He had a great sense of humor. Once we sat together and he said, you know, Ariel, there are very few things that I wouldn't do for you. And then he thought, he said, if I tried to think of one, I don't know that I could. And then he kept thinking. And then he said, I wouldn't eat chazer with you. <laughs> I wouldn't eat pork with you. And I said, I wouldn't eat chazer with you either. And we, and we laughed together. And I shared with him that I experienced stage fright when I speak to students, when I was leading discussion sections. These were students who were, many of them were more accomplished than I was. Some of them had PhDs already, and I was supposed to be teaching them. I told him I have stage fright. He said, he said, every time I go up to speak, to give a lecture, as I'm walking up on the stage, I think, why am I doing this? And every time I walk off the stage, I think, why did I do that? <laughs> and we laughed together. And at the end, when, when I was done with my time as his teaching assistant, I was graduating. We sat in his office and he looked at me and he said, Ariel, we've done something good together. And then our relationship changed again because now we were no longer meeting formally. We didn't have to talk about the courses or students who were struggling or grading issues or any of that. It really became a kind of friendship that I had never imagined was possible because I never thought of him. I, wouldn't, I still don't feel comfortable thinking of Elie Wiesel or Professor Wiesel, as I called him, as my friend. But there's a certain kind of holy friendship that he celebrated and he believed in very deeply. He said to his students, my hope for you is that in 20 years from now, you'll meet one another in a restaurant or on an airplane somewhere, and you'll say, didn't we sit together in a classroom in Boston, and didn't we study Kafka together or Sophocles? That's my hope for you. That's my fondest wish for you. He wanted people to connect. Tomorrow I'm traveling to San Diego for an event that's being organized by a couple who met in Elie Wiesel's classroom. And the story that they tell is that he had a crush on her but was too shy to say anything. So he went to Professor Wiesel, he told him. He told him what was happening and Professor Wiesel said, you have to do something. It's almost the end of the semester. <laughs> so he kind of coached John to leave a rose on her chair on the last day of class. And the story ended, well, they're married, they have kids, and the kids know that Elie Wiesel was the matchmaker. But that was the kind of thing that he cared about. One of the questions that I think about a lot nowadays when we're going through a lot of things in this country and around the world, and we're losing, it seems, we're losing the ability to, to disagree well or to hold multiple perspectives at the same time. And Elie Wiesel was a master of that. One of his favorite phrases was, and yet, and yet. And if you ever saw him lecture, he would often say, he would offer a thought, and then he would say, and yet, and offer the counter thought. And he would ponder, and he would stay in that space of contemplative pondering without prematurely resolving the question. And I think that's an important capacity that we need to relearn and develop in ourselves and as a society. So I think a lot about how do you do that? How does moral work, how does moral growth and ethical transformation happen? What are the mechanics of that? 
Um, how do you break it down? And a lot of what I paid attention to in Professor Wiesel's class had to do with that question. Um, he said that learning can save us. It's clear that he didn't just mean the transmission of dry information. But the question is more intense than that because he also told us that many of the architects of the Holocaust, many SS officers and others had PhDs, they were highly educated. Germany was known as the cultural capital of Europe. And yet somehow being steeped in the literature of Goethe and Kant was not any sort of inoculation against hatred and indifference. And so when he said learning can save us, I wondered what kind of learning can save us and what kind of learning contributes to apathy? And the answer that Professor Wiesel developed over many years was the word memory, which when he said the word, you heard the capital M. He was talking about something very specific. He was talking about the process of empathizing, using your imagination to really take in someone else's story in such a way that your mind, your heart, your nervous system is transformed. And the next time you walk by a homeless person on the street, you cannot help but stop and say, can I help you with anything? Or give a smile or give some money. You can't walk by suffering. You can't. You can't sleep well at night when people are suffering in other places around the world. And I can say that Professor Wiesel has contributed to my insomnia, <laughs> literally, and I'm glad for it. I don't want to be sleeping well with things that are happening in the world. That's not enough, but it's a start. How does that process happen? So, you know, one of the things that he struggled with as an educator, I think, was how do you bring students into an encounter with difficult moments in history and not bum them out and not bring them to the point of despair? He taught a course on the Holocaust once in his career, an entire course on the Holocaust, the first year that he taught in 1976, I believe. He never did it again. I saw the notes from that class and I understand why he never did it again. It was very dark. Week after week, students were reading testimonies of people who had gone through the Holocaust, people writing in the ghettos, in the camps, um, testimonies written and hidden in milk crates and buried in the ghettos. One testimony written in urine because there was nothing else to write with. This is darkness. And he said, it's not my job to bring my students to despair. It's my job to teach them the reality of the kingdom of night, of those years, and of the world in general, but to give them hope, and to teach them that they can choose hope. And so he taught a kind of active hope. And this is a three-stage process that I'm thinking about a lot nowadays. When something comes up on your Facebook feed, or in the news, or somewhere else, and it's a difficult image of something that's happening in Yemen, today, or in Syria, or somewhere else, or in Myanmar, your first impulse might be, as mine is, to look away, because it's very difficult to look at darkness. It's very difficult to look at suffering. If you overcome that impulse and you look, you allow yourself to look, then there's another temptation, which is the temptation to despair, to say, look at what human beings can do to one another. And you need to overcome that temptation as well. You need to look and still choose hope and make something active and positive about it. There were hundreds of students who came through Elie Wiesel's class 
and became activists or rabbis or ministers or human rights involved volunteers or philanthropists who were on very different trajectories when they came in. And at several points, it became difficult for them and they would come talk to me sometimes as a teaching assistant at office hours. Usually it was to talk about their papers, but sometimes it was to talk about these issues. And I remember once we were studying the diary of Anne Frank and Professor Rizal told the class something difficult. He said, you know, the diary ends, but Anne's story continues. And we have the testimony of a woman named Irma Menkel, who was with Anne Frank in the camps as Anne Frank was dying of typhus. And I wonder, Professor Rizal said, I wonder, would Anne Frank have said that famous line? What's the most famous line of Diary of Anne Frank? I still believe the world is, people are still good at heart, different, slightly different translations of this. Would she have said that later in her life? And he left the question open, as he often did. And later on, there, was, there were several students who, they had read the Diary of Anne Frank when they were 12 or 13 years old in, in school. And that line gave them hope. It gave them a sense that if she can have that hope, then no matter what happens in the world, you can always have hope. They came, and they, we processed together. They came back to class the next week, and one of these students raised her hand, and she said, Professor, what you said last week was like devastating. How are we supposed to manage that? How are we supposed to handle this? And he said, together. That's why we're here together. That's my job, is to be with you when we encounter these places. You can't do it alone. And if you try to do it alone, it gets dangerous. It's almost as dangerous as studying mysticism when you're a teenager. It's dangerous. You have to be together. You have to hold on to one another and hold on to joy. So I was privileged to see Professor Wiesel three weeks before he passed away. There was a long period where it was very difficult to get in to see him. He was ill and not really taking visitors. But I was able to see him. And we had one of these conversations that lasted for years in an hour. He was, he, was so, he was only free for 10 minutes, but it stretched to an hour. And we talked about so many things that I, I still sometimes find myself remembering things that we spoke about that I had not yet processed. And at the end of that, at the end of that meeting, he was in a wheelchair at that point. It was time to leave. And so I got up and was gonna say goodbye. And, and I, I, wasn't, I wanted to give him a hug, but I, he was so frail that I didn't want to hurt him, so I held out my hand to kind of hold his hand instead. But he pulled me down into a hug, and he kissed me on the cheek, and I felt his stubble. It was the first time ever that I had seen him not perfectly clean-shaven. And, and by the way, he told me years earlier that he thought about growing a beard, but it came in so white that he decided not to. And I think his wife wouldn't have liked it. Um, and then I got up, and he pulled me back again to the other side, and he kissed my other cheek. He said, one more. And those are the last words I heard from him. And the words, one more, are very resonant for someone who's inspired by Jew Jewish teaching and Hasidic teaching in particular. And I was thinking about this a lot afterwards. One more. The last words I heard from Elie Wiesel, one more, he meant one more kiss, but I think it also means a lot more than that. One more act of kindness. One more smile. One more page of a book. 
one more conversation, one more encounter, one more moment, one more willingness to be open to someone who's different. There's a famous teaching of the Katska Rebbe, one of Elie Wiesel's favorite teachings and one of my favorite teachings too. He talks about the story of the Garden of Eden. And you remember the story and you remember the role of the snake, the serpent. And the serpent is cursed by God or punished by God after Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what's the serpent's curse? You will walk on your belly, you'll crawl on your belly, and you will eat from the dust of the earth. That's the curse. The Kutzker Rebbe was one of the most brilliant, fiery, difficult Hasidic masters, totally uncompromising in his quest for truth. He asked a question. He said, if you think about it, this isn't a curse at all. The serpent is going to eat from the dust of the earth. There's a lot of dust in the earth. The serpent is never going to be hungry. That sounds like a blessing, not a curse. You'll never be hungry. And the Kutzker answered, that is the curse of the serpent, that it will never be hungry. It will never experience yearning. It will never raise its eyes to heaven beseechingly, waiting for a gift to come, waiting for the next moment to arrive. And that's what one more means to me. That yearning that we sometimes shy away from might be the secret, the secret to the world's success and even continued existence. I want to end with one story that happened also on the last day of class when Professor Wiesel again opened the floor to questions. And after several questions about the Iranian nuclear program, this was in 2007, I think, and other questions about current events and politics, a student sitting in the front row, not a Jewish student, raised his hand and he said, Professor, can you show us the number on your arm? And the student immediately turned red and hunkered down in his chair. He couldn't believe he had asked the question. There was total silence in the room. There was a long moment. I didn't know what was going to happen. I felt a little faint. It was, it was such a scary, intense moment. I didn't know how Professor Wiesel was going to react. Without a word, he took off his jacket. He rolled up his sleeve. He showed the class the number on his arm. He rolled up his sleeve again, buttoned the button, put his jacket on, and said, next question. And I thought for a long time about why did he do this? What does it mean? And what happened in that moment? And I think the answer is something that he said over and over again. And the reason that I chose the title that I did for this book, he said, listening to a witness makes you a witness. Memory is contagious. It's transmittable. You can share it. If you share a story with someone else, that person now is a vehicle for your story. They carry that. You carry the story of your parents, your grandparents, your teachers, your ancestors, your children and grandchildren carry your stories, your students carry your stories, you carry one another's stories. That's what a community is. A community is a group of people who tell one another's stories. And as we lose more and more survivors and we think about how will memory continue, not only for the sake of the past, not only so that we remember and honor the memory of the Holocaust specifically, but so that we, like Elie Wiesel, draw on that particular 
completely unique experience and draw universal lessons from it and stand up against hatred and indifference anywhere, how is that going to happen if we lose the memory? And the answer is listening to a witness makes you a witness. All the stories that have been told, all those moments, all those students who saw Elie Wiesel's number are now the carriers, the witnesses. And my hope is that in reading the book, you become a witness too, that you carry the stories that Elie Wiesel told us, the stories, the beautiful stories of Jewish tradition and other traditions, the dialogues he created with students, the moments of transformation, his own personal life story, there's a lot of hope in that story, but there's also a call to arms. There's a call to all of us. And when I read, the, when I read sections of the book again, I hear that call. I'm gonna read just a very short piece and then we'll open to questions and answers. This is a postscript to the book, so I'm jumping to the very, very end. What does it mean to be a student of Elie Wiesel? Does it mean standing up courageously against oppression? Does it mean traveling the world bearing witness to suffering? Does it mean becoming a fierce activist, disturbing the complacency of politicians and warriors alike, making the world a better place? It might mean any of these things, but I believe it begins more modestly. I don't think Professor Wiesel expected all of us to act on the international stage, nor did he wish for his students to imitate him. You don't have to be a saint or the embodiment of an ideal. You don't have to have the word humanitarian on a business card. You don't need recognition or fame or great influence. Being a student of Elie Wiesel means being yourself and cultivating your humanity, your sensitivity to others in every moment. It means noticing people at risk of invisibility, the ones without power or access who also have stories to tell. It means always learning thinking higher, feeling deeper, always challenging yourself to dive into the great texts, stories, and ideas in search of wisdom. It means asking questions and being comfortable not knowing all the answers, avoiding the temptation of premature resolution of complex issues. It means embracing mystery and knowing that we don't always have to tie everything up neatly. It means knowing that you do not have to choose between your particular identity and your concern for all people realizing that you can speak up for your tribe as well as others, that the particular and the universal can be mutually reinforcing. It means celebrating friendship, making friends with others who are searching too. Most of all, it means remembering the past and understanding the link between past and future. It means choosing to care about others' lives, their suffering, and their joy. It means becoming a witness. Thank you. Yes. Maybe you're interested in other things, maybe praying, maybe socializing. Um, 
is there a, did you have any further answers for that question? For everybody who's perhaps not high chemistry. So just to repeat the question, what do you say to somebody who's not interested in learning? How do you awaken that thirst, that curiosity? Or how do you, you know, go about it some, in a different way for them? Or how do you find a different way for them to connect? Great. So first I'll say that Professor Wiesel also taught me something really important. There's a difference between answers and responses. When he said that answers close things down, he meant definitive answers. Like if you come to me with a significant existential life question and I give you a one sentence answer with a period at the end, I'm probably not doing justice to your question. But a response might be a hug or another question or letting you know that I heard you. So I can respond to your question, I'm not gonna answer it. I think that, I think that Professor Wiesel himself, one of the reasons that he wrote books, he wrote, he wrote, depending on how you count, 40 or 50 or 60 books, um, books of fiction, but also books of nonfiction. His books of nonfiction were often, they were written in French first, and they were titled something celebration, like biblical celebration, rabbinic, Talmudic celebration, Hasidic celebration in the French, and then in English the titles changed to Souls on Fire, Messengers of God. But for him, learning was a celebration. And he traveled around teaching and giving lectures, and he talked to teachers often, and he wrote books, I think, in order to respond to that question. How do you awaken that thirst for learning, which is the secret to human survival and thriving? Which is, he said, any challenge we face, anything, it doesn't matter what we're talking about, climate change or human rights or war or anything else, poverty, education has to be the central element of the response. It has to be. Because if you just tackle the problem on the level of policy, and you ignore the stories that inform policy, then you end up with a civic culture like the one we're experiencing today. Without pointing fingers in any particular direction, part of the problem is that we're not connecting as human beings to the stories behind the beliefs that drive ideologies and policies. So that process of storytelling is the process of learning and encountering stories that have been told before. So I think he felt that question so deeply that he devoted a lot of time in his life to awaken the thirst of people for learning. I don't think, personally, this is just an opinion, I don't think the right way to go is to give up on the goal of getting everyone involved in learning. I do think that learning needs to be defined much more broadly than it often is. And so, you know, we think about multiple intelligences and styles, learning styles. You said to yourself, everyone has something they're interested in. That might be the doorway into learning. And if you start with their questions and their lived experience of the difficulties of life, the questions in life, the paradoxes of life, then, then I, think that, I think everyone is inherently interested and wired to want to learn. But it might not mean learning from a book. It might not be a lecture. It might not be a, a typical um, formal learning experience. It might be something completely different. And we need a, a vast array of offerings to respond to that. Responsibility of that goes with it. 
So the question is, what, how did Ali Wiesel relate to the political situation in Israel and with the Palestinians? And the second question is, do I think that he refused the presidency because he felt that he would inherit those problems and be responsible for them? So the, the, I'll start with the second answer, the second one first. I don't think so. I don't think he shied away from those kinds of responsibilities, but I wonder if he thought that he wasn't the right person to tackle those responsibilities. You know that he was very close with people across the political spectrum in Israel. He had deep relationships. He, his deepest was, was with Yitzhak Rabin, of blessed memory. And, and you know they had a long-standing relationship since Elie Wiesel was a young journalist and Rabin was a colonel and then a general in the Israeli army, making history. And after the Six-Day War, for example, Elie Wiesel spoke to Rabin and Rabin said to him, you know, um, um, someone asked if we would have a parade, a victory parade, and we're not going to do it. And young Elie Wiesel, the journalist, asked him why not. And he said, because our soldiers are, are, are so brokenhearted that they had to kill. That was the kind of conversation that they had over decades. But Elie Wiesel was also connected to Shimon Peres and was involved with other architects of Oslo and other peace efforts. He was also close to people on the right of the Israeli spectrum. So he, in the same way that he transcended denominational identity in this country, and people often ask me, well, is he Orthodox? You know, is he Orthodox? He's not, he wasn't Orthodox, but he was from, but he was not, but he was learning Talmud every day and putting on tefillin and praying every day and keeping Shabbat and Kashrut, but wasn't wearing a kippah in public and, and was doing things and theologically that are so radical that no denominational Jew would be totally comfortable with it from any, any movement. Where does he fit? One of the things he taught me is that you don't necessarily have to fit into the boxes that we've inherited. You can create your own. You have to create your own identities. Um, and it was the same thing with Israeli politics. He sort of transcended a lot of the divides. So I think he might have felt that as an outsider who had lived in, a, in the States for, for many years, he wouldn't be accepted as someone who could move any effort forward towards peace and reconciliation or security or anything important. That might have been part of it. But the way he expressed it was, I'm not a politician, I'm a teacher. I only have my voice. And he knew that, among other things, he wouldn't have time to teach, he wouldn't have time to write if he was involved in politics. The first question is more clear. He expressed, on the one hand, he expressed deep sympathy for suffering everywhere, including on the Palestinian side. He, he, if you look at his Nobel Prize speech, for example, in 1986, he expressed sympathy for Palestinian suffering. This was years before Arafat even began the process of changing the PLO charter to recognize the state of Israel. So he was, he was expressing sympathy very early in the game. He was supportive of a two-state solution and involved in many of those peace efforts. But at the same time, his analysis from conversations with heads of state was that the Palestinian leadership in their refusal to accept any peace deal, as well as their use of funds coming in from the Europeans and the Americans to fund their own lifestyles was the major block. Both of those issues were the major blocks for him for peace. And he said, you know, we, we, students would ask, do you think there will ever be peace? in the Middle East, he said, I believe it'll happen in my lifetime. He never gave up hope on it. And I think to his last day, he had hope that we would get there because he believed that everyday Israelis and everyday Palestinians want to raise their children in peace. That's where peace will come from. So in addition to thinking about policy and peace talks, at the top, the political processes, 
which he had critiques of and, and feedback about. You know, for example, he thought that they shouldn't talk about Jerusalem until the very end. Don't, don't start with the most difficult issue. Put the most difficult issue at the end. Build your way gradually towards that difficult conversation. But in addition to all of that, he thought that grassroots efforts, that friendships, modest, small-scale friendship, relationship building, is the greatest hope for peace that we have. But he thought it would happen. Say more. How did he deal with the Madoff tragedy? Oh, Madoff. How did he deal with the Madoff tragedy? Um, first of all, he didn't relate to it as a tragedy. I saw him, I think, five days after his foundation lost all of its money. I think it was $15 million gone, as well as a lot of their personal money was gone to the Madoff scheme. And he expressed anger publicly about it, but when I saw him five days after, I went into his office in New York. I would see him in Boston when he, when he was in Boston, and I would go to his office in New York on the Upper East Side whenever I could. And I walk into his office, and he comes out to greet me, and he's very excited. And he says, come, I want to show you something. We go back into his office. He opens his um, jacket. He pulls out an envelope. He hands it to me. He says, look at this. And I open the envelope, and there's a note and a $5 bill. And the note is, it's from a kid, like a 10-year-old kid in somewhere in the Midwest. It's a note to Elie Wiesel. It says, Dear Mr. Elie Wiesel, I hope you get your money back, and here's a start. <laughs> and Professor Wiesel was so moved by that, and he was so happy. And I said, how could you, ha I mean, it's beautiful, but how can you be so happy? He said, you know, when bad things happen now, I remember other times and it doesn't seem so bad. That's how he related to it. No. Will you say a few sentences, just two or three sentences? Oh, I'm sorry. I misheard you, I think. Did you say Chapman? I thought you said Allen and then Chapman last name. <laughs> Chapman University. Okay, so did, did he ever talk about his relationship with Chapman University? So first of all, I'll tell you that I was there today. I went to visit Dr. Marilyn Heron, and, um, and Professor Wiesel did talk about it a little bit. He taught at Chapman University here. How many of you saw him when he was there? So he, he would come for a week to work with students, and then he would give public talks also, I think. So for me, it was like the exotic, you know, the other vacation land of, of Professor Wiesel that I had never seen until today. So it was really a, a very moving thing today to go to the center and, and walk through the museum and see the artifacts. There's a bust of Elie Wiesel. Um, but also to hear about the incredible creativity and, and uh, duration of effort and focus to build a center, which is not an easy thing to do, especially around the Holocaust, and to do it right, to do it well, to do it with sensitivity. So I could see why he felt so connected there. And for him, you know, that teaching was, was the joy, one of the, one of the two great joys of his life, teaching and his family, especially his grandchildren. He would just light up when he talked about his grandchildren. He would light up when he talked about teaching, when he talked about his students. It gave him tremendous joy. It gave him, I think it gave him years of life. And so the opportunity to teach elsewhere, he, he was invited to teach in many, many places around the country, around the world, you can imagine 
right? I mean, who wouldn't want to have Elie Wiesel teaching for a week in your college, your university? He turned almost all of those opportunities down because he was so busy and he was so overcommitted already. But he said yes to Chapman. And there's a reason for that. I think there are a couple of reasons for it. One is Marilyn Herron is an incredible person and um, they developed a real friendship. And number two, he saw that there are very few centers for Holocaust education that make the Holocaust relevant and not just about the Holocaust, but also about human growth and dignity and moral education today. And he wanted to support that. Marilyn today told me that he also particularly enjoyed sitting with the French class because he rarely got to teach in French. And so he would teach an entire class in French. I think that was an extra perk. But I know he loved it. He loved coming here. And he would come back with a tan and a big smile. His son is a teacher in a sense. His son and I are good friends, um, and, which is one of the great blessings of my life right now. And um, he, uh, he works in technology and finance. He works very hard and is a very, very busy person. So he's very careful and selective in his public speaking. But when he speaks publicly, you can hear echoes of his father, his father's wisdom, and it's really powerful. So I encourage you to to look for that, you can see some of those talks online. Uh, his name is Alicia Wiesel, and he's a really brilliant, brilliant mind, just at the beginning of, a, I think, a, a career of a different kind of leadership. When he was studying Talmud after he got out, which saved him, as he, as he said, did he ever think about getting smicha, becoming a rabbi? After all, a rabbi's a teacher. Yeah. Did he ever think about becoming a rabbi? So this is a little bit of an embarrassing story, but I, I, I asked Professor Wiesel when I was 20, I think, could we study together and could you give me smicha? Could you ordain me as a rabbi? And he said, I can't. And I was very disappointed for a moment. And he said, I don't have smicha. <laughs> so I can't. You can't give smicha if you don't have smicha. So then he told me the story that he studied with one of the greatest Talmudists of, of the past generation, Rabbi Saul Lieberman, who taught at the seminary, at the J at Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, but had come from the yeshivot, the great academies in Europe, Slobodka, and he studied apparently with Rav Cook and all kinds of amazing lineages there. He wrote the definitive work on the Tosefta, which is one of the works of the rabbis of the, the early period, the first century of, of the Common Era, he was a genius, and he attended Elie Wiesel's public lecture in, I don't know what year it was, but it was early. He attended a lecture, and afterwards he sent a message to Elie Wiesel, young Elie Wiesel, I'd like to see you. He invited him to his office, so Elie Wiesel visited him. He said, you know, in your lecture you said such and such. He pulled a book down from the shelf. He said, do you know that Maimonides says the same thing in this relatively esoteric spot in his works, in his magnum opus, the Mishnah Torah. And Elie Wiesel said, really? That's wonderful. And then he said, and you know the other thing you quoted, he pulled another book down, he said, you know, there's a commentary on the Yerushalmi, on the Jerusalem Talmud that says the same thing. Did you know that? He said, I didn't know that. That's so wonderful. And this was sort of a test, right? Because some people would respond by saying, ah, oh, I thought I was saying something original and creative, but I wasn't, I'm disappointed. 
And Elie Wiesel, being the curious mind and humble person that he was, was so pleased and so excited. There's actually a blessing in Hebrew you say for moments like that. You say, Baruch Shekivanti. Blessed, blessed is the one that I was, that I had the right intention. I, I was aligned with something that came before me. And when Saul Lieberman saw that, he said, I want you to come study with me once a week. And they started studying together once a week for 17 years, for the whole day, I think, for many, many hours. They studied Talmud. And Rabbi Professor Lieberman wanted to give Eli Wiesel smicha, and he refused it. He felt that he could do more service, be of more service without ordination, without the formal ordination. And he, when I talked to him about this, he made a joke. He quoted the liturgy on uh, the high holidays. It says, V'salachta la'avonenu ki rav hu. Please, God, forgive our sins, for they are many. But rav, the word many, also means rabbi. So he said, forgive us our sins. It's the rabbi's fault. <laughs> but Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, who I hope you know his work, so he... He speaks of Elie Wiesel and others, Cynthia Ozick and a few other people, as contemporary secular rabbis. They're not rabbis, but they're playing the role of the rabbis with greater credibility, he says, than an actual rabbi can play. Because people often will be um, put off by the title. And by the way, when I travel, I, I try to go by Ariel, because I find that. I find that the title can be off-putting or create a distance that we don't really need. But for Professor Wiesel, it was a, a non-starter. He refused for 17 years, and therefore he couldn't give me smicha. You might have read Alicia's own piece about this. He wrote about how his relationship with his father during his teenage years, that Elisha, as a young man, had, had um, a hard time with the, the commitment to Judaism that his father wanted and that the community expected of him. And he was, he was on a different path. But they were always close. And, and as he writes, that his father was so accepting, so accepting and so loving he tells the story. I don't think he would mind if I tell this story because he wrote it publicly. But he, he, he writes that he came home with a mohawk. And his father put his arm around him and said, you know, I wouldn't be embarrassed to go anywhere with you like this. We can go to shul together. Anywhere you want to go, I'll go with you. So that acceptance was like a key. It was one of the things that I, I've learned after Professor Rizal's passing about parenting. I have teenage kids. And, and I have a lot to learn there, but it's, it's an inspiring message. And Alicia and his father were always very close. And then later and more recently, Alicia is diving deeply into Jewish learning and Jewish practice in a very beautiful way. It was something that he had written. Yeah, it's something he wrote. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece. Last question? Okay. Uh, what kind of a relationship did he have with his sister who he found was still alive as the only remaining I know, I know very little of what was his relationship with his sister, his older sister, B, who he found, after much, he found after the war that his older sisters were alive. And um, the sister you're talking about moved to Canada. So I know very little about that relationship. I know more about the relationship that he had with her son, who, uh, 
his nephew, Elivizal's nephew, they were very, very close. The son lives in Israel. And this is sort of a, a, a not a direct response to your uh, question, Gesundheit, but, but it reminds me that um, another time Professor Rizal came to his office in Boston, and he was very excited about something he wanted to show me. This time it was a small notebook, and he showed me the notebook. He handed it to me, I opened it up. It was old, and it was a list of IOUs. It said eggs, it was in, in Hebrew and Yiddish, it said eggs and a certain um, dollar amount, but in the currency of Sigit. And then, you know, milk. It was a list of IOUs, but in the back, there were names of angels. And I said, what is this? He said, this was my notebook when I was a child. And my nephew found it in my sister's things. And I'm not sure if it, which nephew or which sister, but he found it in her things. And it was restored to him. The IOUs were from Elie Wiesel's father's uh, grocery store. And the names of angels were from, you know, it was when he was studying mysticism with his friends when he was 13 years old. And he told me each of these names in the tradition of Kabbalah has a certain power. And one of these, and I, I noticed that one of the names was my name. He said, one of these, one of these names of angels is supposed to have the power to make you invisible if you meditate upon it correctly. You won't hear that in most synagogues, right, today. But this is part, this is part of our tradition too. And he said, I, he said, I tried to use it there in the camps and it didn't work. He said, I must not have had enough of the proper intention. It was a restored artifact of that time, very precious one. So I think, thank you for all the questions. I have one last question. Yeah. So I've actually read the book. It's very, very good. It's full of stories from the classroom, but also Hasidic tales that you put together. But it's also your story. So when people read the book, they're reading about your struggles and your history and your family, and the fact that unfortunately you grew up in New York with it. <laughs> you went to the light the, when you moved to Boston. But so I'm asking how you felt putting your whole life story into this book for everyone to read and uh, how that's going for you. And that's great. Well, there are, there are things I didn't put in the book, first of all. <laughs> there are things that are too personal to put in the book. But, you know, the book started uh, about 11 years ago. There was a conference in honor of Elie Wiesel's 80th birthday. And I was invited to give a paper, an academic paper, and I gave a talk about his approach to education, his pedagogy. I called it toward a methodology of wonder. And I was trying to lay out the specific pedagogical tools that he used in the classroom. And I started by saying, if we were going to create a, an institute to train teachers on the basis of Elie Wiesel's approach to moral education and humanities education, what would it look like? What would be the design principles? And that was the, that was the paper. And afterwards he said, that's a really good idea. We started talking about it. Then Madoff happened, like a month later. So that idea was on hold, and then we started talking about writing a book. I said to him, you know, no one's written a book about your classroom, and someone needs to do it. And I was about to start a, a big job, a big full-time job at Federation. I didn't think I could possibly write a book. I said, someone needs to do it, thinking that he'd have a suggestion. He said, you're right, you need to do it. You need to write a book about my classroom. 
And that's how it started. And the original idea, though, was that it was going to be not academic, but objective. I was going to be Ralph Waldo Emerson's giant invisible eyeball reporting on the classroom, but without me anywhere in the book. And, and when my agent and I traveled to publishers and we visited seven publishers in two days, all but one of them said, we really are interested in this book, but only if you put your own story into it because it'll help the reader connect. That was a big challenge for me. I'm a private person. It wasn't easy to write about my own story. It was also a technical challenge because every chapter is a theme. One of the main themes that Elie Wiesel was obsessed with and taught about over and over again, faith and doubt, madness, activism, memory, um, beyond words, how do you communicate when language fails? Um, but I was also telling my story. So there are two layers of the book woven together. And the big challenge in writing it was to weave those things together seamlessly in a way that would feel natural and not contrived. And I felt that with the help of my brilliant editor and a lot of hard work and schwitzing that I was able to do that. But it's, it's a challenge, you know, finding the balance of revealing, this is true in any memoir, revealing things about yourself that are personal, being respectful to people in your life, it's not a simple thing. It was in the service of my story. I feel that my story here is in the service of opening a window for people to connect to my teacher. And I'll do almost anything to help that happen. So that's how I'm relating to it. I want to just uh, mention, um, if we didn't get to your question, or if you're just interested in, in more, there's material and other things connected to the book on my website. But you can also write me. If you have a question that we didn't get to and we don't get to talk now for whatever reason you have to run, you can email me. My website is myname.com, and there's, contact, there's a contact page, and I will answer your email, or at least respond to it. Thank you.